0: and welcome back to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and joining me today is Rob Levy. Hey, kids. And we have a special guest that's going to be joining us for this discussion today. Rob, why don't you do the honors?
1: Yeah, we are joined tonight uh, by Widget Walls, the chief bottle washer of needcoffee.com, self-professed Floydian, and uh, author, and uh, fellow DJ at uh, Louder Than War Radio.
2: Yes, until they change the
1: locks.
0: (laughs) Surely they wouldn't dare. Oh, I don't know.
2: That's okay. I know where the air conditioning ducts are.
0: Nice. (laughs) Nice. All right. This week, we are going to be talking about one of the greatest albums ever made. And when I say that, I don't just mean that it's like a great rock album. I mean, this is one of the greatest achievements of recorded music. Ever, This is a landmark album. It is the 50th anniversary of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. The anniversary actually was earlier this year. It was actually in March, but our March was completely booked with guests that we had on. We've talked about Dark Side a couple of times this year. We talked uh, in back in January. We did an episode reviewing the Abbey Road documentary by Mary McCartney. And then in our 1973 episode, we talked a little bit more about it. But I really wanted to devote a, an, an entire discussion to, because this is, I mean, as I say, one of the most important recorded albums ever. So we are lucky to be joined by Widget Walls. Mr. Walls, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about your history of Pink Floyd? How did you first discover Pink Floyd and what was your inroad into that?
2: My first... Memory is listening to music. My dad played for me stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. And it it left an impression on me. So from there to get to Floyd, you know, it used to be that you had to go in search of music or you had to have a friend recommend music to you. You didn't have algorithms and you, you had to actually go to a store and talk to humans. It was terrifying, but we somehow got through it. And uh, I had a friend of mine in high school hand me a cassette tape with Piper at the Gates of Dawn" on one side and Dark Side on the other so yeah, that was my, that was my introduction to Floyd, and it just sort of went from there and as I discovered their albums, I was just fascinated by the various incarnations of the band and how they reinvented themselves whenever they felt like it or. or You know in some cases whenever it was necessitated by circumstances but i found that absolutely fascinating and it was sort of my that was my inroad to floyd which was my inroad to lots of other weird psychedelic odd music and uh i've you know i've been in therapy ever since it was great
0: okay i'm i'm very interested in this cassette that a friend of yours gave you (laughs) with Piper on one side and dark side on the other. I mean, that is two very different listening experiences. Yes, it is. It doesn't sound like the same band in a lot of ways. No,
2: No, it doesn't. And I mean, again, I had no idea where they both appeared in their discography. I had, I was just basically handed this, oh, hey, you might like this with no, no other information. And it took me a little while to get into it because I honestly had no idea what I had been handed. I mean, not just because *Piper at the Gates of Dawn* is much stranger and more you know obtuse than *Dark Side*, but even *Dark Side*, it took me a few listens to to basically get a finger hold on what was happening in the in the album. And I I've always been drawn to pieces of art that you can dig into that you can be rewarded for how far you want to examine them. You know, you can listen to dark side and it can be just a great rock album or an interesting rock album. But if you want to delve, there's a lot of fascinating technical stuff happening, a lot of fa- fascinating artistic stuff happening. It's a, it's a wealth of stuff that you can just dig into and just keep going for a long time. So I think that's what really got me hooked on Floyd is that there's, there's a lot going on here, you know, and I was too young to understand most of it, because this is high school 1870s. So that that's always impressed me as well, is going, okay, there's, there's a lot going on here, and I don't get it, but it's not because it's necessarily hard to get. it's because I'm not ready to get it yet. So I'm going to circle back on this and try it try it, give give it a little time for me to you know ferment, and then I'll come back and, and try it again. And so that's, I was hooked.
0: So just out of curiosity, which yeah. which side of that cassette were you drawn to first? Like which one hooked you more easily?
2: Oh, uh, Piper. Yeah, And the reason being is uh, I listened to a lot of Dr. Demento. <laughs> and there's stuff on there that, uh, I don't know if he ever played Floyd, But there's stuff that could certainly qualify as his jurisdiction. So that, that was another nice wrinkle to it is, okay, they're weird and they have a sense of humor and they're weird and they're also deep and it's the same band. Okay.
0: Absolutely. My first exposure was I was, you know, growing up in the early seventies and I just started listening to top 40 radio and heard money, of course, which was. What hit number thirteen or something on the U.S. charts or something like that? It was it was if it wasn't a top ten, it was very close to it, and uh so it was all over the radio. And of course, at the time, I didn't really understand that it was in seven four meter. I didn't understand the the structure of the song. It was just a thing about cash registers. That's all I knew. And it wasn't until later on that I really started to understand. And it more had to do with uh, a very similar experience to what you had with Floyd, a friend loaning me a couple of Rush albums. And one of those Rush albums was 2112. And that really opened my mind to uh, differences in song structure in time signatures in key structures and all this kind of stuff that really sort of led me back to understanding what money was all about compositionally and then more into floyd how about you rob kind
1: of similar i was in high school and i was a uh, little hoodlum well on my way to being a big hoodlum and i had a english teacher that gave me a stack of cassettes one day one was um Velvet Underground and and Nico on one side and Joy Division closer on the other. And then he gave me a cassette of Bitches Brew. And um, then he gave me this and he said, I want you, you can listen to the rest of these however you want, but for the Floyd, I want you to listen. And he purposely put each side on the cassette. He's like, I want you to listen to this with headphones and preferably Someplace quiet where you can't be disturbed because you have to hear it all the way through. And I said, okay. And um I just knew at that point, you know, I knew about Pink Floyd a little bit because my my brother and my brother and my sisters would sort of talk about it passively a little bit growing up. You know, I'd seen the record kind of like around the house. I kind of knew what it was, but I never really like dived in. So, you know, 1984, freshman in high school, me, uh, here's this. And um, the, the first thing that left in my mind is like this is what sergeant pepper would sound like on drugs and then i realized that made no sense and then um i literally just kept listening to it i was just like what is this and i kept trying to like dissect it and analyze it and figure out how they did this and then I, I was just instantly in love too with the whole concept of it and the themes and, and different things and um you know i came back a couple of days later he's like oh do you like it and i go is this one of those things that's supposed to stay with me and I'm supposed to figure it out? He goes, yeah, the first time you hear it, it's going to drive you nuts. You're going to love it every other time you listen to it. And it's also um, just a towering achievement in Western civilization, but most people don't know that yet. I'm like, okay, so that's my introduction to it. And that was my gateway to Floyd really. Cause I hadn't heard much besides, besides that. And then, you know, from there, um, literally that same week, I went to the, um, planetarium here cause they had every week laser pink Floyd. And, wow. Once, once I, you know, had the whole prism light with it, in like a huge room with a big speakers, that was it. And it was amazing.
0: Yeah. That whole laser light show thing that happened in the seventies and up through the early eighties is so intrinsically tied with this album. Yeah. It's like the way that you have to experience it to get the full thing.
1: (laughs) And it's kind of ended up as my go-to record. You know, it's kind of like if I don't know what I want to listen to, I put that on. Or if I am trying to put together a radio show and I have no idea what three songs I'm going to string together, I just put this on to sort of declutter my brain. I just also love the denseness of it. I've stopped trying to figure out how they made it because that just hurts me trying to think about it. It's one of those few pieces of music that is not necessarily just music, but it's sort of like an experience. Um, if, I'm, if I'm sounding too weirdly neo-bizarre, that's, it's, 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 it's an event listening to it, right? I mean, you mentioned 2112 earlier, which I kind of think along the same lines, or um, Sgt. Pepper, they're like certain albums you listen to, and it's an experience. It's a full immersive experience. You're like, you got to invest in it and, and go to it. And
0: that's what it is for me. Yeah, totally. So Widget, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, this album mainly comes from the brain of Roger Waters. All the musicians in the band contributed to the composition, but the concept was his. Talk a little bit about Roger's progression throughout the band that led up to this point, like some of the themes that he was writing about, maybe some of the way that the band's compositions changed over time. Lay it on us.
2: Well, I mean, obviously you had with Piper, which we were talking about before, that's when Sid Barrett was still in the band and was ostensibly frontman and sort of the band was following his drum beat, which is why things were so the way they were. If you want to see more of that, of course, like the Madcap Laughs and the other Barrett stuff, which, which has its own particular charm. But after he had to leave the band, power vacuum and Roger who had been there the longest sort of stepped into it as as you know you may have come to see recently Roger is very opinionated he has he has ideas capital I and it was only later that David Gilmore who was the new kid on the block in the band would sort of try to come up alongside Roger but yeah Roger was running the show at this point and one of the major things about this is uh, one of the themes is obviously dealing with insanity. So that the band was having to process losing Sid Barrett to madness, which they kept on processing because, um you know, I've, I'm i sure that was quite a lot to deal with. But also Roger's own fascinations with like the, the death of his father and the war, which would come to dominate the wall and especially final cut. So you throw all of this in a gumbo with, and apparently this was... Roger's idea having basically a sound booth with questions on cards that were the spawn of the spoken word bits that pepper the album, which sort of tie it together and comment on the theme as it goes along of the mundane and and madness and all of that stuff. So you have that thread running through it and Roger wrote all the lyrics for this. So yeah, he is the dominant force on this. It's not you know, later, final cut, it'll be like Roger Waters is Pink Floyd doing the final cut with right. know, with David Gilmore and Richard Wright. And... <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so that's 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 Roger's role in the band at this point. And I think, you know, his driving of the project with everyone else throwing in their contributions and helping to warp what he had set up the framework that he had set up is part of why it works so well and you have things that I, you know i don't know how much roger even had to do with great gig in the sky for example since that was a yeah a richard wright composition no lyrics and just claire tory singing her head off yeah but like most things you know where you have a band of different personalities and and different strengths of how how much gravity the personality has you know so to speak the tension sort of creates a diamond and that's what dark side of the moon is i think Mm. and just real quick robin what you said about the density of it yes this this is a fact that i cannot keep in my brain it's like me knowing i know that faulty towers is 12 episodes but I can sit and watch 12 episodes and I will still be amazed that it's 12 episodes. It's like, you're telling me for the first time every time, cause it feels like it's so much more like yeah. listening to it again today. I was like, this is less than 43 minutes long.
0: Yeah. This yeah. is
2: less than four. How, how is that even possible? Obviously it must fold time or something. I don't know. Yeah. Alan, I hope that answers somewhat mm-hmm. your question about Roger and the album.
1: Yeah, definitely. You're right too. Cause every time I listen to it, I keep forgetting the time on it. I'm like, is this longer? I literally, every time I listen to it, keep thinking it's longer. And then I'm like, I wish it was longer. But then I reflect and I'm like, you know, it's absolutely perfect. Shut up.
0: Well, you know, part of that is that, you know, we're so used to albums being long now and have for decades. But at the time, you were limited on an LP to 23 and a half ish minutes per side. So it's, it's, yep, it, it, no album was more, unless it was a double album was more than 45 ish right. minutes. And it's just what you do with that 45 ish minutes. And my God, yep. they just pack it. Like every second of this album has meaning. So going back to some of the compositional history of the band, I'm kind of interested in, the steps that lead directly to dark side and the 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 clearest one I think is the previous album metal which side two one piece called echoes is a clear precursor to what they accomplish on dark side but I'm also curious uh, to know what you think the the two soundtrack albums that they did because the soundtrack albums you know sort of like they it leads them to think more, as a complete concept. They're, they're creating music for a storyline, for a, a existing piece of art. So I want to know from you, what do you think those three albums in particular add to the steps that they're taking to get to Dark Side?
2: That's a fascinating question. I think you're absolutely right in that it got them to think bigger. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, you could draw a line directly between the soundtracks, you know, scoring films and the concerts that they would put on. You know, Dark Side is when they started having films behind some of the songs when they would perform it live. And, you know, eventually blowing up into Delicate Sound of Thunder and Pulse where, or, you know, even The Wall, where it was, it, there was the spectacle. And they wanted to be as small as possible. They you know, especially on the wall, they were like, we, we, it, it's best if you don't even know we're here. In fact, I think at a certain point they were playing behind the wall where you could not see them at all. So I I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it, it really changed their mindset of what you could do with the music, both on, you know, in the studio and, you know, live. And I, I think, I, I think that's the, that's the major thing I would say along with you know i wonder and i don't i don't know the answer of this is if you're if you're scoring you know the film it's sort of a concept album in that there's one unifying thing that's the film you know and so you know how much did that influence them creating a full concept album i i mean they've done concept sides before like you said with metal and and so forth but they hadn't really committed to the full album yet. In fact, they I, I don't know how many there were. Somebody I saw somewhere, because I actually, I tried to look up. I could not find this. I was trying to find a sales chart for what was the most successful selling concept album of all time. And I couldn't find, I couldn't find it. I could probably put it together, but who has the time for that anymore? Right. Anyway. Um, and, and that's
0: an interesting thing, too, because then you have to define what a concept album is and what things actually qualify as. Yes. Because, you know, people yes. say that uh, Sgt. Pepper is. Some people don't. Some people say that the Ziggy album is. But it, if it is, it's yeah. incredibly yeah. loose. So it, mm-hmm. it would be an interesting thing to, to look into.
2: But, yeah, so I, I think that's what helped them. I've never really thought of it that way, but I can, you know, looking at if you subtract the soundtracks from their discography, what does the band look like? I mean, what what do they sound like? You know, yeah. um, and and part of what I found interesting about this process of re-listening to the album, you know, just to refresh my memory for this, is probably the first time I've actually sat down to sort of analyze the experience as I was having it, because every time I start to analyze the experience of Dark Side of the Moon. I just lose myself in the music and 10 minutes in, you know, I sort of lose track of time and then the damn thing's over and I'm like, Oh, okay. I'll try it again next time.
0: That's interesting that you say that. And part of that is because there, you know, except for there being a side one and a side two, there's no separation. So you don't Mm -hmm. get that sense of here's a song, here's the next song. Everything just bleeds in together and it's just one continuous work. So you do lose it. You do lose track of it.
2: I mean, they, they they even lost track of the tracks because I mean, what was it? At some point, you know, breathe and and speak to me were one track, and now they're two tracks again. And yeah. then you know, so so they they couldn't even really decide where the tracks were at certain points.
1: Right. I do remember in the Abbey Road documentary, they talked about Gilmore and um, Wright and. Um, waters could not, not all at once but in various stages hanging out where the beatles were recording abbey road and also staying and watching orchestras record at abbey road and they were just they just kind of became for about six months studio rats at abbey road and i'm wondering if that process sort of gave them a little more of an underscore of their direction I also think there is, you know, a certain case of birth by chaos, you know, their band is thrown into chaos because they don't have Sid Barrett anymore. They can, like, like we said, just think big, right? I think it's, you know, guys sitting in a room going, okay, look, what do we do? And they're like, you know, we can do whatever we want at this point, you know? And I think it was just right place, right time and taking the influences around them and also the music they were hearing at the time around them as well.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting that because I, in fact, I just double checked myself in another window that you would think after that experience of seeing the orchestras doing their thing at Abbey Road, you think that would be when Adam Hart Mother would happen, but they experimented with that insane concept. Some would say not successful album. I freaking love it, but, uh, but yeah, so they, they were already, I think, dabbling in, in the, in the toolbox. They were just, you know, trying to teach themselves and trying to learn from others as they went and obviously picked up a few tips here and there, you know,
0: now, if I've got my timeline, right, what I'm remembering is that they had a lot of this music already written or at least the concept of it. And they basically took it on tour so they worked out a lot of this stuff as they're touring it so by the time they go into the studio they know exactly they've worked yes. out changes to some of the arrangements you know they've made changes to some lyrics and they come into the studio knowing what this is going to be
2: yeah they, they've gotten to work it i think there was a quote i forget who from the band said it but uh it was obviously a fairly recent quote saying you know you couldn't do that these days they'd bootleg you to death but at the time we could, we could take it on the road and, you know, and work it and perfect it. Um, And
1: when they did their 72 premiere of it for the press, they said, you're not allowed to write about this or talk about it until your deadline. You can't go home to your colleagues and tell them what you did. They had that pretty much under cloak and dagger and the music press knew what was coming. They knew what was coming, but they took great pains to kind of keep it, under wraps until they could sort of finish it and get it
0: get it out which the press preview was wasn't it like a year before the album came out yeah that's insane yeah i
2: can't imagine sitting on that knowledge (laughs) for a year right what what why did widge go crazy i don't know he just he went to some pink floyd thing and he came back
1: changed i don't know (laughs) yeah they could have also all been so drugged out they forgot about it too
0: well, you know, who knows? It was 72 after all. Yes. All right. Well, let's talk about the album itself then. What are some of the, I mean, it's, you know, it's an interesting experience to listen to these tracks as like rock radio plays a song here. It was weird enough to hear Money as a single in 73, but when you hear us and them on the radio and it's separate from the overall work. Talk about some of the high points of the album for you. What are some of the things that really stand out?
2: There, there's a lot. I think for me, the high point is "Great Gig in the Sky." Hmm. Um, it's, it's it is the it is the best song about death that I have heard, and Claire Torrey was amazing. So I absolutely love that track. the The other high point for me was the circular nature of the album. I think that's the first album I encountered that was designed to be a, you know, I mean, it's a circle because it's a record, obviously, but you know what I'm saying, it, it, it comes back in on itself and can start all over again. Right. Um, which is the same thing that they play with in The Wall. So I, I that, that small little detail I quite enjoyed. And um, Dick Perry. Saxophone work of Dick Perry. Loved that. It's interesting that those the Claire Torrey contribution and Dick Perry saxophone, they kind of became staples of Pink Floyd Live to the point where, you know, at the end they had three essentially backup singers, female backup singers and they had a saxophone player who was just there throwing in sax wherever you know they felt like it was appropriate which turns out is more things than you would think so yeah th- those are those are some of the high points for me and i think it's it's interesting that i was looking at the amount of instrumental time versus yeah songs with lyrics and it feels like again the time dilation weirdness it feels like there's more instrumental stuff than there actually is and that's because of the breaks in the songs and like you said the way it all bleeds together so it's it's a very strange experience to go into because it's for lack of a better way of putting it it's different on the inside than it different on the inside listening than it is uh, on the outside looking in so
0: one of the highlights for me is on the run which is a nearly four minute instrumental, which is almost purely electronic. And I think that's a fascinating thing to include on an album at this period where they're doing this very abstract piece with no traditional instrument, except for like, there's a hi-hat that runs through it. Other than the hi-hat, there's no traditional instrument on that piece at all. And I'm absolutely fascinated by it.
2: Well, Alan, real quick, the hi-hat sound was electronic. So, that's
0: true. You're right. I'd forgotten about that.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't realize that either until I, uh, you know, recently was, again, interested in, well, how did they do this bit? And how did they do it? And that's when I saw, oh, yeah, the hi-hat was a artifact of what we were doing on the, whatever it called ZRS 35 or whatever it was. You know, they didn't have they didn't have sexy names for devices back then. It was <laughs> uh, uh, it was just whatever whatever the model number was. But there was also something about how on that song i don't think there was a way of like saving a program that you wanted to run so when they wanted to do it live they had to basically set up the machine again to provide the noise so they could play in front of it crazy stuff
0: wow if you watch the uh the vh1 the the making of documentary gilmore kind of shows how he did that synth part It, it wasn't a true sequencer they didn't really have that at the time, so they had to kind of fake a way of, of creating that that sort of like ostinato part that goes through it all. And it's really, really interesting. And that's also where the I learned about the electronic hi-hat, which I'd completely forgotten about until you brought it up. I'm glad you did.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think, and this probably already exists, but I would absolutely love a documentary that was nothing but how they had to hack stuff to get it to work. Right. You know, like the, the Beatles in the studio, basically inventing weird ways of slowing down tapes and speeding it back up. And then Floyd without a sequencer, I, I would just, I, I would love that aspect of it, you know, especially because after all that point, what was it? The Beatles said they had built Sergeant Pepper specifically to not be able to take it on tour mm-hmm. because they would not be able to pull, pull it off on the road. So, yeah, that, that always fascinates me. Is yeah, we didn't have this thing, so we basically had to rig this, um, you know, Rube Goldberg machine to come in and swoop down and hit these buttons. And it's like, yeah, it's just amazing. <laughs> had to MacGyver the thing,
1: yeah. When I think about the process, too, it makes me revisit just how much of a studio genius Alan Parsons is because we always kind of look at him as just like kind of AOR pop radio guy but in the studio he's a beast and the way he's doing the um, double tracking for me I always thought was fascinating that's one of the things I'm a big fan of us and them both of both of these tracks would be hugely appropriated later most easily by the orb a band called the orb which is pretty much a contemporary sort of reinvention of Pink Floyd but also stuff like Osric tentacles right you'd hear some of that kind of stuff in these kinds of songs you can really tell that when you're listening to for me those two tracks that this is like this is a deviation from what's going on now and it's going to be the future people that got it got it right away but this record more than a lot of other records people got like 20 or 30 years later and co-opted for their sounds and for their who they were and that is one of the true great things about the record is that you listen to it and you're like man this is miles ahead and then you're listening to a record you know an hour later that was made 2 weeks ago and you're like oh i can hear they listen to dark side of the moon
2: yeah the the dna being passed down through musicians and through albums has always fascinated me but yeah you could you could find floyd in so many things but but dark side especially because because there's so much going on on the album within you know 42 minutes 50 seconds or whatever it is There's so much happening that there's so much to draw from, you know, it's like the gift that keeps on giving.
0: Exactly. It really is. And it's not just that it's the, the same four musicians who are playing throughout and creating these incredible compositions. There's always something new that startles you like the clocks that come in at the beginning of time the electronic piece on the run and then the saxophone solos and Claire Torrey's vocal in great gig it's it's always a surprise and you know what's interesting i was watching one of those documentaries recently and um gilmore said i really wish that i could have been one of those people that bought the record." Came home, put it on, put on headphones, and heard it for the very first time. What an experience that must have been. And it, it was like, you know, I didn't get that experience because I was right. on the original end creating this thing that became this, this mon- monumental masterpiece. And Gilmore is like, it would have been so much fun to experience this as a complete work for the first time
2: yeah and and unless you were around and old enough to listen to it when it first came out i think i was maybe a year old so i wasn't even you know i i might have heard it can't remember but unless you were around to hear it when it first came out you can't have that pure experience because the dna of it is in so much stuff
0: yeah you're right
2: i i could almost guarantee you've heard some of it some of it adjacent before you actually get to the first listen of Dark Side of the Moon, so yeah, yeah, I would I would be fast. Same thing with Sergeant Pepper. I mean, imagine you you haven't you haven't been in the wake of Sergeant Pepper and all the people who were influenced after it, and you hear that for the first time, just like with Dark Side, yeah. mean, you, your brain would melt. Your brain <laughs> would just melt out your ears.
1: Yeah, the first time I heard a couple of Brian Eno records and like the First Love and Rockets album, I was like, okay, this is adjacent to dark side of the moon and it makes me think of like how it just must have been to hear this or even see it because the artwork is so fundamentally ingrained in our popular culture right now that it just must have been awesome to experience it like in you real know time.
0: i was talking earlier about radio playing individual tracks from this thing and you know at this point anybody who comes to well basically anybody who comes to dark side will have heard something from it in isolation they would have heard time or they would have heard us and them or they certainly might have heard money so you don't get that experience of of hearing the complete work it's interesting that upon and i only learned this today it's interesting that upon release the album came out in march and money wasn't released as a single until may that album existed for two full months and sold truckloads and like racked up the platinums within, in complete isolation, there was no radio presence for it. You know, you weren't spoiling a song from it and they released money as a single two months later because they're thinking, well, we've sold really well. How do we push it further? We have to release a single. So it had that two month period where you buy an album and you hear the album and you know, you got to think back to the sixties. The sixties was a very singles driven period. And as you move into the seventies, the music industry, and certainly many of the artists are starting to think in album terms, not in singles terms. And this is one of those first albums that makes you think of the album not a collection of songs it's the album it's a complete work that's two separate thoughts that i just melded together (laughs) no that's very good thoughts and
2: i think uh, actually money most of all i think you can hear that on its own yes and, and 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 it stands alone pretty well us and them is a I mean if you need a second single that's the one to go to. It's a very interesting song to to release but but yeah money is your is your radio play out of that and I actually don't think that I heard it on the radio before listening to the album. But then again I oh, grew wow. up in Alabama where <laughs> uh you know yeah. they sometimes would would burn uh, burn radio stations to the ground accusing them of witchcraft so you know
1: we have a classic rock station here that money was pretty yeah. much always played and that's sort of like for a while whenever i hear pink floyd that's the first thing i would i would my brain would go to and i think that's what a whole generation of kids you know goes to is they go to money or the wall and i like the fact that it stands alone but i also love the way that it fits within the context of the whole record oh, yeah. i think it's beautiful
2: and and when you do if that does inspire you to seek out the record and you listen to the whole record you can just see it slot into place and just go oh Okay. I got you. I see what you were doing there. So, you know, I, if, if that gets you in the door, then, you know, you know, more power to you. And I was thinking about the, what I was thinking of is barrier to entry, you know, the things that would keep you from getting into the album. Yeah. It's so short that it's not, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not going to suck up your afternoon. I mean, it might because of time dilation and, and weirdness, but you know, that's, <laughs> The physicists can talk about that but it also struck me that listening to it again the lyrics are very legible most of the lyrics you can easily hear what they're talking about and that struck me as so important to why it has such staying power is because they're sort of taking in the whole concept of you know wealth and the passage of time and death they're such big topics they're big, but they're sort of mundane at the same time. You know, it's it's something everyone is dealing with. So it's sort of universal. And by making sure that you can actually hear what's going on, which is, you know, sometimes a great concept these days, uh, Christopher Nolan, that basically you can hear the poetry that they're doing. And the poetry is not, you know, T.S. Eliot complex. It's even if you aren't big into poetry you're still going to get what's happening there and, and and i'm fascinated by the fact that because of those voices that roger waters strung throughout you know i was thinking at first well does that really tie it down to you know normal people you know like the, the, the proletariat uh because over here we don't really know accents like they have over there We, we not really, not especially British, but there's something. Then I was thinking, there's something about the accents that were on there that even as an American, you've seen enough movies where you kind of know that's the working class British accent. I think, you know, thinking about all of that, I was struck by how it sort of reminded me of everything everywhere all at once <laughs> because it talks about all of these things that are going to happen, they're inevitable. But towards the end, Roger is saying, it's okay. You're you're gonna go crazy, but it's all right. I'll see you there. It's gonna be it's, we're gonna have a party. And then you have that last bit of voice at the end, which says, um, there's no dark side of the moon, really. As a matter of fact, it's all dark. So maybe we're all already crazy, you know? Right. So I I think that's being able to tap into that and to tap into what people are going to going through on a day-to-day basis. And and I, I think I wrote down making making the the mundane and everyday into epic and universal. Wow. So, but that's, that's especially struck me listening to it today. And I think that's why, you know, you can hand somebody this today and it still resonates because it's, you know, it's, it's timeless. You, You don't care about the, what are obviously what would be now considered, pre-cambrian electronic equipment, you don't care about any of that. You just, you once you lock into what's happening, you could just go on the ride. And not only is it a great ride, but it's a meaningful ride. And I think that's why the, what was it? It was in the charts for 15 years over here until they changed the rules, Mm -hmm. you know? We got to get yeah. Dark Side out of here. We got to change these
0: rules. <laughs> right. This is embarrassing. Right. And I think, and it did do a yeah. re-entry at some point because I think the total was 19 years. I think about 15 of that unbroken. It, I mean, it's insane. It's the fourth best-selling album ever. Mm-hmm. It's been the longest amount of chart time, period. Right. You know? Oh, my gosh.
2: I think several of those sales were me because I, you know... <sighs> Right. All you had to do is put out. Here's the remastered edition. Okay.
0: <laughs> exactly. Here, here's it
2: on a. Here's it on yep. a gold disc. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what that does, but I'll take it. You know.
1: Here it is in 4K right. on a DVD. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I
2: I got the the immersion box set is sitting over there on the uh, on the shelf. I'm I'm a sucker for for certain Floyd albums. Be like, oh hey, we found. Uh, uh, I. I don't, I think they've actually tapped all of the outtakes or everything because they were all on the immersion set, but you could come out with a fifth disc to the immersion set and I would probably go, okay, oh, it's, it's just, it's all of the ambient noise from the studio and nothing was happening. Okay. (laughs) Here's my money.
0: Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. The one thing we haven't talked about yet is the album cover. Uh, And I'm curious to know if you saw the hypnosis documentary that came out earlier this year it ran for like two nights in movie theaters and it should go to streaming at some point i don't know i haven't found any information about when it is but it was a phenomenally good documentary and of course featured the this album cover quite a bit yeah
2: i did not get a chance to see that but i really want to because oh my gosh the,
0: it was amazing
2: the artwork is um i mean all the floyd artwork is 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 kind of astonishing as even as it evolves uh and gets you know stranger and more obtuse and yet clearer at the same time um yes but uh but no I, I i thought it was very interesting that um you know you have the artwork and i don't think originally it said the title of the album right or the band name on it right you know I what was I reading that basically if you looked at uh the the album label itself on the album that's where you saw that it was called Dark Side of the Moon mm-hmm. and it's you know it's it's mentioned in uh you know eclipse and I think it, there's one thing on there that says produced by Pink Floyd but again that thing of we want to disappear behind the art um I thought was a great part of the of of what went into the artwork is that this is what we're putting forward to show what this is. And that's all you get. You know, people love a good mystery, uh, especially when it's psychedelic.
1: I love the fact that for an album that's as dense and tight and compact, it is completely stripped bare in the aesthetics of it, in terms of the artwork, songwriting credits, everything. It's like, you have to actually pay attention to the music because they give you, nothing and that for the time is something just didn't really happen it was like here's this here's an album this is not an album it's a complete work of art this is like you know a symphony or it's you know an opera or whatever it's one piece of art you have to consume it once and don't worry about any of the other stuff just listen to the album
2: yeah one day there'll be a thing called wikipedia and you can look up everything to your heart's content but for right now (laughs) you just have to listen to the album right
1: and i think it really made people listen to music differently too which is probably one of the best gifts of of, of it because at a time when music was kind of beginning to be sort of that recycled 70s sort of formula that, that we were getting in a lot of ways in a lot of sort of records this completely just sort of smashed the the playing field and it's like okay you could do whatever yeah you want, i mean that right? is
0: true because this is the time when a lot of that stuff was really starting to happen where you're getting Supper's Ready from Genesis and you're getting, you know, 2112 from from Rush and all these bands, yes, is exploring sidelong pieces. And that's kind of one of the things that's just naturally occurring in music at this time. And Pink Floyd is just right there with it. Pink Floyd is the first, I think, complete album cohesive concept. You know, 2112 is a strong concept, but it's one side and it'll be a couple of years before we get yeah. um, it's 74 before we get Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is another complete album and a double, Ooh. a double album. It, it It's nonsensical, yeah. but it's, you know, a, a concept that flows throughout the entire work. So it's it's definitely a product yeah. of its time. But at the same time, it's it's moving forward in that time as well.
1: I was going to say too there is an art to knowing when to quit. Yes. And this record does that perfectly. It it doesn't linger. It doesn't wear out its welcome.
0: It's just What are you What done. are you saying about the wall? That,
1: that's really amazing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I wasn't going to. Yeah. Um maybe. so any last thoughts on it from either of you?
2: Just you should probably go listen to it again. Listener. Dear listener.
1: And
0: yeah,
2: again. Go, go listen to it again.
1: again And the thing is, I intended to listen to it, you know, once or twice before we did this, and it literally consumed my week, which was a very happy trip down my musical discovery lane. It was a happy trip, all right. You know, it's nice to sort of, well, not that but yes.
0: We're going to take a very (laughs) short break here. Uh, We're going to throw in an ad for one of our fellow podcasts, and we'll be back in 30 seconds to wrap it up
2: afternoon. May we be of assistance, sir?
0: Yes, I'm looking for a podcast for someone who likes that
1: 1960s headache music.
2: Don't these podcasters have atrocious taste? Sir, may I recommend this podcast by Monkeying Around? I guarantee a migraine. I
1: never heard of Monkeying Around.
0: You never heard of Monkeying Around? He's He's never never heard heard of Monkeying monkeying Around.
1: What does Monkeying Around sound like? (laughs) I'll take it. He took it? He took it. Monkeying Around, a podcast about the monkeys.
0: All right, we're back. So, thank you, Widge, for joining us on this on this exploration of one of the greatest albums ever recorded. It was such a pleasure to have you with us.
2: It was great to be here and to talk about such a great album and to just geek out on how amazing it is with people who also think it's amazing. <laughs> and that's because that's because we're we're all right, you know. Uh, we we don't want we don't want people to have our opinion for themselves i think i speak for all three of us when we say go listen to the album you know do do the due diligence and then come to the same conclusion all on your own that's what we really want <laughs> you to do right
0: well why don't you again tell us where you can be found on yield internet if people want to track your lovely voice down and hear more of what you have to say
2: uh yes. What was it? The bugle podcast used to say, uh, face for radio and a voice for print. Uh yeah, my website is needcoffee.com and that's need coffee as in I Need Coffee and lots of it. Um you can find what's happening there. These days it's mostly the fact that I'm getting used to the uh uh you know, Rob's been DJing and running radio shows since I think radio was invented. So he's used to this. meanwhile I'm trying to, you know, Get uh, get used to it. So I'm doing a show called Widgesonic Sonic Emporium Menagerie and Lawnmower Repair, and uh, it uh, it's every Saturday night. It's a uh, 5 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Uh, if you're in the UK, they have British Summer Time or something like that. I don't know, but it's just UK time. It's all the same time. Um, but uh, but yeah, if you go to needcoffee.com/emporium, you can find all the archived shows, the show notes. Uh, all of my excuses, it's all there. We also created a needcoffee.com listen live, slash listen live, where you can go to the live stream of whatever Louder Than War has playing at the time. You don't have to listen to just me. They have lots of great stuff on there, in, including uh, Rob's show antics. So, um, but those are the two main things that I'm doing right now and, and you know, joining social media platforms since uh, uh, Twitter is crashing and burning. Uh, right. I think I'm up to 87. <laughs> I'm not addicted. I can stop any time that I want to. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, that's where you can find me.
0: Nice. Rob, lay it on us.
1: So uh, you can find me on Louder Than War Radio on Mondays, 6 to 8 Greenwich Mean Time, as opposed to Greenwich Happy Time, uh, which is uh, 1 to 3 Eastern, 12 to 2 Central, uh, with antics. Um, in the famous words of my sister, what the hell is this? And then you can hear me on KDHX on Wednesday nights from uh, 7 to 9 p.m. Central Time, uh, doing my show, Juxtaposition. Um, All the shows on KDHX are archived. So if you're out buying groceries in your AMC Pacer or your Matador, or maybe you've got a Ford pickup truck, whatever you're driving around to listen to the radio, you can rest assured when you get home, you can plug into the computer and listen to an archive stream because everything is archived for two weeks. And then um, I also um, am a part of the ongoing chaos and madness that is the Weekend Justice podcast for NewCoffee.com.
0: And if you would happily go to my website, Cosmic Creative, which is K-O-Z-M-I-C-Creative.com, you can see some of the books I've written and published, and you can see some of the podcasts that I do. And I've got new books in the works that hopefully will be out this century that's all i can promise right at this point all right well thank you all for listening i hope you will go and listen to dark side of the moon and just throw on some headphones set 43 minutes aside lay on the floor turn off all the lights don't do anything but absorb the music it 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 will reward you and if you don't mind hey how about you drop us a line and let us know what you think of dark side and if you've You know how well you know it. Have you listened to it a million times? Will this be your first time listening to it? We would love to hear your experience. You can email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail.com or you can drop us a line anywhere you find our episode. We will be back next week. Hope you'll join us then. Everybody take care, have a great week, and we will see you soon.